Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I think this is big number four zero. AJ, congrats, you're episode number 40. That's a landmark. We're 40% of the way uh, to my goal of 100 episodes. And then maybe beyond. We'll see what happens um, at that point. But because uh, I'm not in a proper microphone, I'll try to get in and out as quick as possible on the monologue. If you are watching on YouTube, yes, there will be picture... Uh, you can watch the interview just as soon as the interview starts. It'll cut away from uh, the Middle Class Rockstar logo, and it'll jump in with uh, the conversation that I had with AJ, and you can see our pretty little faces. We're also now on Spotify, so if you're a Spotify person, if that's where you like to listen to your podcasts, check us out on Spotify, give it a follow, whatever. Um, my guest today is AJ Fullerton. He is a Colorado boy. He's from Montrose originally, um, and I would say started out very much in the blues scene and is still uh, rooted there, but but goes out and explores other other things too. I wouldn't call him a straight-up blues artist. He does all kinds of different music, but sort of rooted around his love of blues music that he's had since he was a child, and we'll hear all about that very shortly. AJ also is a performer. He plays all the time. And it's, it's funny that I have to specify that, but a lot of musicians, people that I have on the podcast, people that I don't have on the podcast, but musicians in general, a lot of them aren't touring artists anymore. They do other things. They Maybe they tour, but they just play one big show every three months with their band and are shooting for, to get on a big tour and aren't out there road dogging it. Well, AJ, AJ's a road dog. He plays everywhere he can. He's been able to get more selective with his shows as he's grown and gotten much bigger in the scene over the last couple years. But I remember when we first met, it was he would play anywhere, anytime. And he still plays a ton, a ton of shows. So it's, it's an admirable thing when you see somebody who is, in my opinion, really in it for the right reasons, is really wants to play, wants to tour. Not that you have to be a touring artist to be doing it for the right reasons. I didn't mean it like that at all. But somebody who's out there playing for the love of music as much as possible really says something. AJ put out Calamath back in 2017, and his latest release is Fullerton and Freel with his buddy Jake Freel out of Ohio. Jake it notably lived with me for about two and a half weeks, and we have a pretty funny story about that involving excrement that you'll hear all about in the podcast. At the end of this episode, I get to play a never-before-heard track from A.J. Fullerton called Healing Takes Time. He recorded it in Canada, I believe Toronto, um, in the past few months, and it's some of his best stuff, I think. The whole album's great. You haven't heard it yet. Haha, ha, I have. And uh, he was going to release it, but then this whole quarantine coronavirus mess happened. So he's holding on to it for a little longer. He's going to see what happens. But we're going to need to hear a track off that called Healing Takes Time at the end of the episode. I think that's it for now. A quick thanks to the sponsors. Patrick at PQ Mastering. Patrick puts the finishing touches on this podcast. And for any of your audio or restoration needs, go to www pqmastering.com also our newest sponsor is narrator rf or narrator music go to www.narratorrf.com and you can find simple and affordable licensing for sync for example if you're getting married and it's an irish wedding and you need some irish music for the occasion you can go and get it from the site or if you're if you have a commercial and you need uh I don't know, if you have a commercial and you need poppy string synth music, you can go to the website, type in poppy string synth music, and purchase a license for that song, and use it for your very need, whatever that is. Cool stuff. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Thanks, as always, for listening. Here's my conversation with AJ Fullerton. I'm here with AJ Fullerton on the YouTube and on the streaming services. What's happening, man? Hey, man. Just uh, hanging out. <laughs> are you, and are you, where are you right now? Are you in Montrose? 
I am. It's kind of a long story, but uh, just as fate would have it, I happen to uh, kind of be stuck here for the, for the bulk of quarantine over uh, with my, my family. Stuck with your family? That's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> no, it's actually nice, man. I mean, I've been on the road pretty much full time, like six years, seven years. So like, it's a really, it's really nice change to actually have a, you know, more than a couple of days with, with the mom and dad. I've actually wondered about that. Um, where you, where you normally live. Do you live anywhere when you're on? The- <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny that, that, that is uh that might tie for favorite question I've ever been asked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I also got asked once if I had parents. Um, right. And I was like, yeah, most people do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I do have an apartment in Fort Collins. Okay. Okay. Very nice. So you, you, uh, when you're not, you, but you're on the road so much that you are, uh, your home is, is wherever the show is, which is a really, which is a really cool thing. But I know I've always, I, I wonder like, does Dave have a home base when he's not touring? He's not doing it all the time. Right. But you are pretty much doing it all the time. Well, you know, I kind of been keeping track in the last couple of years. It seems like, you know, it is like seasonally it changes a little, but I would say most times a year I'm doing like three to five shows a week. That's good. Keeping busy. Um, and, and how much of that, how much of that is out of, is out of state? You know, that's been fluctuating more and more about, I'd say about the past two and a half years. Um, like for the longest time I was doing really regional solo stuff kind of what you'd call just your bread and butter gigs, playing playing material, making some money. Um, but then more and more, I got into full band stuff and duo stuff. And uh, I, I've gone to Europe once, and I was supposed to go back in uh, in March. Right. And, you know, it's it's extended a lot more, as, as you would imagine. It's kind of grown. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, do, you, do you like the band thing or the solo thing more or the duo mm-hmm. thing? And, and how much of that has to do with having travel buddies? How much of that has to do with the show <laughs> aspect itself? Oh man, that is a, that's a really deep question. Um, I think you, I think you'd probably relate. They all kind of have their own merit, you know, like solo shows are cool. Duo shows are cool. Full band shows can be like some of the coolest. Um, I think it comes down to like what you're trying to do musically. I I lately have been really into full band stuff just because you can, get I feel like you can get more immersed in the music in the moment you're not as worried about trying to keep the rhythm going trying to be really like you know when you're playing solo you really have to like be the show yeah absolutely absolutely you do and and you do keep the rhythm I know your solo show you're hitting things with your feet and yelling things and playing things I mean talk talk to us about your rig a little bit because when you bring up rhythm you do. You are one of the people that does keep rhythm solo. A lot of a lot of solo artists don't. What do you? What's your rig look like? Well, uh, man, it's been a minute. Um, I found I've gone through a couple different stomp boxes over the years, and I don't like to use it necessarily as like a focus point of the show. But I found that if you almost use a stomp box just as uh, an accentuation of your thumb, the thumb rhythm, because I'm a finger picker. I found that if you mostly keep the stomp box in rhythm with the thumb, it almost just makes the guitar sound bigger. Um, and mm. I usually use, I've actually, that's my, my main acoustic back there. I've got a really cool uh, 69 Guild. Yes. And that's a 55 Guild next to it if I want to do more of an electric thing. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And I, I actually, I think I saw one of your stomp boxes. I'm just curious about, about these. Um, you had one that plugged in like, you know quarter inch plug-in right yeah i think i've had three over the years what do you like do you like to carry around a drum or do you prefer you know a plug-in sort of thing well it's kind of one of those things i've gone through different opinions on the whole stomp box thing because i never wanted to be like a one-man band you know i think that it's it's a thing it's totally a thing but it's never the thing that i wanted to go for per se yeah. Um, I think there's a fine line between being the guy with like the kick drum on his back and the kazoo and like all the strings and stuff. And then just having something that helps keep the rhythm a little bit, you know, when you're just a solo show. Absolutely. No, so absolutely. I think what you're talking about, I had a, 
a wooden box about, you know, maybe six inches across and maybe 10 inches long. And I, I made that like junior year of high school wood shop. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's rad. And it's a, I think it was an old car speaker that I just reverse wired to a quarter inch jack to make like a, like a piezo kind of thing. Um, so I used that for years and like it worked. That's awesome. That, that but. was what it, that was <laughs> what it, I remember that story now. So let's jump back a little bit. Um, you grew up in the Montrose area, correct? Mm-hmm. And all my life. Yeah. All your life. So what's that like? I would call it a small town. Although for the mountains, it's not a small town, but I would call it a small town. What was it like growing, growing up there? Well, it was, it was small. I, I just recently looked at the uh, census data from way back. And I want to say, you know, when I was growing up in my, my young, young, young years, it was probably only like six or 7,000 people. Um, now, nowadays it's like, I think it's like 20 something thousand. So it's grown a lot. Right. Um, but you know, it was one of those things where you, you knew a lot of the people in town. If, if you didn't know the person directly, you usually knew their mom or their dad or their brother or sister, you know, um, I think it left a lot of space to kind of grow and experiment. You know, I was an only child, so I was kind of left to my own devices a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so you got to do some different things. And I should clarify for our listeners, not from Colorado, that's Montrose, Colorado, which is, if we have to put it geographically next to something, let's say Telluride, You've, that's a town you may have heard of if you're from out of state, and it's probably an hour outside of Telluride, I think. Just about hour 15, something like that. Hour 15, cool. So experimenting as a kid, at some point you began to experiment with music, I take it. When, when did that happen? Well, I kind of went, uh, I kind of went about it a weird way. I've always loved music, like more than I think you would say most people love music. I think my parents showed me how to use a turntable when I was like three. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I've always been a record collector, a CD collector, a collector of tapes, eight tracks, you know, like stuff that like your average 1990s, 2000s kid probably didn't care about as much. Right. Um, and then coming from that angle, I was introduced to like the guitar and playing music when I was probably about 14, mm. maybe 15. And how did that come about? How did the guitar come about? Did you get one from a pawn shop? Did your dad have one lying around? My dad always had a couple laying around. He plays too. Um, cool. But like the funny thing is there were a couple that were like off limits because they were too nice. You know, he was like, oh, my Japanese telly, can't touch it. Can't touch it. <laughs> Uh, he's since rescinded that. I, I can now, uh, which is nice of him. Uh, but uh, no, what happened was I was like 14, 15, you know, being kind of a rebellious teenager. And, you know, in a small town, like you can definitely kind of get into trouble because there's not a lot to do. Right. And I remember one day he came home and he was like, I think you could use a hobby and just gave me a guitar. <laughs> it was like an Epiphone or something, you know, nothing what, fancy. What were you doing to need a hobby? <laughs> I, I'm going to let that lie somewhere between what was I doing and what was I not doing. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to call you a blues artist necessarily because you do a lot of different things, but blues is uh, certainly a big influence for you. And I think there was a time where uh, you were, you were going more straight blues kind of thing. You've expanded out and are doing a bunch of different things, but blues remains a big influence uh, in your music. How did that come about? It's always been a thing, I would say. I mean, I get asked that more often than you'd think, being a 25-year-old you know, white guy from Montrose, Colorado. <laughs> right. It um, seems to find, find people in the strangest places. Yeah. I think the easy answer would be, it's always been with me. I remember one of the first records I ever remember holding as a kid um, was my dad's copy of Mississippi John Hurt. It was like the 1928 album with like the blue and white cover. And I remember the first time I put that on, it was like this spark of just like, yeah, this is it. And um, yeah, I don't know. I've always had really wide tastes in music for like forever. I've kind of tried to become a little bit of a musicologist, although there's tons of people out there that know way more about it than I do. But, you know, it's like for some reason, I just love reading about, you know, different artists, who they've collaborated with, what label they were on, you know. 
The kind of nerdy he likes to read the show notes. Oh, dude, liner notes are my jam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, liner but... notes. Excuse me. <laughs> I just called them show notes. I put show notes in the podcast. <laughs> well, you know, same idea. But th- yeah. that actually bums me out about streaming stuff. Is like there's nothing to read, really. You know. I know. I think they're starting to get a little better about it, but uh, Allie and I have really started in the quarantine. Pretty much the only thing we buy is groceries and records and we'll just get online like once a week and and find a record and we do you know it's fun to put it on the turntable and it's fun you can see it the font is big enough to see to look at the picture sniff it read it and uh and i don't know there's something cool about that that's maybe missing sometimes well it kind of feels a little bit like archaeology you know i I read a quote or a statistic, I should say, at some point that, you know, some really, really meager percentage of all music has ever been made digital. You yes. know, that's my that's my non-statistic I've pre- presented today. You know, some percentage that is very small of all music has actually been made, you know, available on, on a digital medium, which means, you know, there's tons of great, amazing music out there that was either never recorded or was on wax or vinyl, you know? And that's crazy to think because... I would say for 99% of people or 95% of people, anything that they could possibly think of is online. Like they don't, they wouldn't be able to think of anything or conceive anything that's not online, which is scary about how much shit's online too. I know, especially these days, man. I mean, like there's so, so much being created on a daily basis that is kind of mind boggling the amount of content that's ever been created, you know, but like I found a record, I think a week ago or two weeks ago. um, And it was this amazing, amazing artist. The the cover caught me, you know, how that goes. Like you'll, you'll see a cover of a record and you're just like, I don't know who that is, but I bet they're awesome. I bought a record for the picture before we all have admit it. But I I put on this record and I'm spacing the gal's name. It looks like it was probably made in the early sixties or late fifties. And it was like this really wild mix between like Sister Rosetta Tharp and Bessie Smith. Yeah. And and I'm just like, how have I never heard of this person? You know. And I can and, I can text you the name later. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's and that just goes to the point even more that you, <laughs> we don't know the name, right? And it's uh, it's too bad. There's so much great content that's been created. And along those lines, uh, I I think about this all the time as an independent artist, and I think a lot of us do. Um, where do we fit in, in terms of how much content's been created? And you just made it really real when you talk about how much content was created that you can't find anymore. Right. Anywhere. Um, And there's artists that there's no recordings of their music that ever existed. You know, I mean, tons of them. So most of them, I'd say. (laughs) Most of them. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them. You're right. Many, many more people are dead than alive. Um, But when you think about how big the world is and how much content's been created and how much Mm -hmm. is being put out every day, is that daunting for you at all in terms of finding your place as a working musician? Well, you know, it's funny you say that I, for the longest time I had this anxiety about, you know, the music that I want to make, I wanted to sound like me, you know, I I was really like in this weird space of like, I don't know, I don't want to make anything because I don't want it just to sound like something else. I want it to be true to like the sound that I'm hearing. And then I had this realization. It's like, well, anything I make is going to sound like me, whether or not I, I want it to or not, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's like, like with any artist, I think your music is an amalgamation of your thoughts and ideas just blended with everything you've ever absorbed and listened to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you, do you feel like, do, what are your goals in terms of of passing that identity along and in, in terms of i mean you, it's a melting pot of you and where you grew up and what you listen to and all that how do you how do you want to be remembered your stuff is digital you're one of the few lucky ones your stuff will always be there long after you're gone um, but what does your legacy look like in in your own head you know i don't really think about it like that i guess um I don't, I don't think I got into music for, you know, the reason of having a legacy. I think I got into it just because like, there's this, this sort of basic need of needing to express and create, 
that is the driving force behind what I do, which is it's kind of the same reason I write. It's the same reason I play guitar. It's the same reason that, uh, as we were talking a little earlier, I, I really want to get more into production, not only because like, I think the main reason would be I want to kind of get away a little bit from just my creation and sort of help other people express their creation, maybe in a way that is like kind of fun for me because I get to push myself out of the picture a little bit. Sure. Well, and, and obviously you're doing it for the right reasons um, for, for the explanation, but you also, you are, you are trying to create something and make yourself bigger, right? Because you're out doing it all the time and you're touring and you're putting out content and you're promoting it. So what's, what's your goal? What's your end goal? Where will you, surely there's a point whether that's selling out uh, Red Rocks or selling out a house concert tour where you'd say, okay, I've not, I've made it, but I've made it in a way. What's, what's that point for you? Well, when I got into this, it, there was a, a moment, you know, right around the end of high school where I kind of made the call. I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. You know, not like, not like this is what I'm going to try and do if I can make it, but this is what I'm going to do. And I think my only goal at that point was just like, I'd really love to make this my, my job in my life. You know, um, I didn't want to go and make it something I did when I had time. I wanted to make it like my everything, you know, and uh, that goal started by just saying, let's see if I can make a living with this, you know, um, fast forward now, seven years later, doing this full time. Um, it's I've kind of checked that box and now it's kind of growing into more of like, well, I'd really love to make something that that moves people. I'd really love to make music that that is useful and that feel, makes people feel things. Um, and more than just the end goal, I just, I love doing it cause it's, it's what really makes me feel like fulfilled. But where do you want to be? What does the audience look like? I want, I'm, I'm going want, for it here. You want it? Well, I, you know, man, I think, I think there is very few artists that wouldn't say they would love to play Red Rocks or the Pepsi center or, you know, I think I think more than the actual venue, it's a representation that what you're doing resonates with people. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're an artist, if you're if you're a, a singer songwriter, and there is ten thousand people filling Red Rocks all there to see you, like I think that's just an affirmation that you have done something that moves people. And I think that almost more than the actual experience of playing at Red Rocks is maybe the thing. So, yeah, that'd absolutely. be awesome. You know, I, I get love that. Red Rocks is a byproduct of it then. Right. right. Or whatever, whatever that is. So you've been a recording, you've been a recording artist for a few years too, not just a live artist, obviously. You've been putting out content and now you're starting to produce. So talk to first, let's jump into these first couple albums. I know Calamath came out a few years ago. Was there one before that? You know, I, I made some like home hometown demos real low budget like i think the most i ever spent on a recording when i was growing up was like 100 200 bucks <laughs> yeah you know like it was it was not like a recording proper more than almost like using a task cam and just like say oh let's let's see what i sound like you know so i did some demos but i i would say calamath in 2017 was the first time i ever went to studio with original music and a band just trying to make a record and who and who all played on that one? Oh man, I well, it was done at Scanhope Sound down in Littleton with Josh Fairman Engineering. Yeah. Um, let's see, uh, the rhythm section was my friend Stud Ford, who's T Model Ford's grandson. Yep, he he played all the drums on it. Uh, Todd Edmonds from Otis Taylor's band and Jason Ritchie's band was a bass player. Um, a lot of really great local talent, like like. Uh, Nick Clark and Taylor Scott, who and I believe I believe on that record was going under the uh, what was it, Tennessee Grape Joy. Yes, he he wanted an assumed name for his producer role, which I am such a fan of. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> he he produced one for me as well. Yeah, Tennessee and, Grape Joy. <laughs> and Nick's one of those really cool people that I've always admired for how how big his his ears are, how much he listens, and how much knowledge about the craft he has. So I got really lucky. Um, that he wanted to be a part of that. And uh, so he, he was on there producing and playing harp. Uh, Brandon Bailey, another great harmonica player. Yeah. Uh, was on a track. I'm trying to think who else. Um, Chuck Letts, a local pedal steel player, played on it. Uh, oh, uh, Eric Luba played keys. Nice. I don't know if you know Eric. He's a great guy. Killer player. 
Um, and then I had a couple other features. I had Sharday Thomas, who's Otha Turner's granddaughter. She played Fife. Um, cool. Hannah Holbrook, one of the Shell sisters, did some some harmonies on it. Um, it was just it was like this big experiment, you know. Like it was in my head, I was like, "Can I make a record? Can I make something that like sounds professional?" Yeah, and you did, and you got some you got some accolades from it too. Yeah, my dad collects them back here on the wall. <laughs> oh, oh, I see, I see. Are those yeah. are those the Blue Society Awards? Yeah, man. Uh, there's, I love it. God, I think like. 17 of them or something oh my god yeah something like that but yeah this is his office that i've pioneered or uh, commandeered for the pandemic i love it i love it um and and also i think that year it came out it was uh the it it was the best self-produced and went to memphis for that too correct i think it did i hadn't thought of that in a while yeah yeah no it's gotten a lot of uh it's gotten a lot of acclaim and it's still, it's still getting talked about a little bit. I actually found out like through the grapevine, I should know this, but I found out via of a friend that uh, one of the tracks on it was just featured on one of Joe Bonamassa's playlists like last month, two wow. months ago. Yeah. I was wow. like, I forgot it existed, you know? That's really cool. That as an artist, sometimes once you, even before you put out the last product, you're already thinking about the next one. Oh yeah. It's um, ancient history, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then you have a new one that came out recently. You've been playing with uh, Jake Fullerton, who's an Ohio boy, I believe. Real. What did I just call him? You called him Jake Fullerton, which is... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's okay. We're, we're not related, but, you know, we act like we are sometimes. And you know what? I, I even lived with the guy for a period of time. Um, but if you guys were ever to get common law married for some reason then I, <laughs> I would be correct but real excuse me oh my gosh and i i have to tell my very quick jake Freel story we when we were living together the shower that i know this story <laughs> yeah that we were using uh had some issues and anytime anyone in the house flushed a toilet the excrement would come up through the shower drain and uh so we came home one day and the i think both of us were out of town or something and nobody who lived upstairs had come downstairs so we'd been sitting there for oh and we opened up the basement door and like you hit the second stair going down and it was the most foul smell you know um and i don't remember what the circumstance was i may have agreed to buy him taco bell for a month i don't know how it (laughs) happened but jake ended up jake ended up cleaning that thing he, you know, our me and Jake's relationship go way back. Uh, for those listening, Jake is one of my best friends. We collaborate all the time. He's originally from uh, Canton, Ohio, a little south of Cleveland, and lives in uh, Memphis now. But him and I have had some really wild misadventures over the years, and it seems like things like that kind of find him sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So this might be his fault that the, sh- the shower thing happened. No comment. Okay. Um, <laughs> but actually, funny enough, uh, Nick Clark introduced us back in like 28. No, I think it was, was 2017. We met in Memphis, Tennessee during one of the IBC things. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Um, and he's been, you guys live on opposite ends of the country, but you're mm-hmm. both men of the road and you spend a lot of time together and you're able to collaborate. He's been touring a lot with you too, right? Yeah, you know, it was one of those things from the night we met, we always had kind of a like a, a like a, a bond or a chemistry, you know, as a, in a personality sense as well as musically. Um, and then there came a point where like, I think we just played a couple gigs together and I was like, wow, this this is really natural. You know what I'm talking about where you kind of you play with somebody and you almost don't have to talk or think at all and it just happens. Yeah, absolutely. Just feels so, good. Yeah, and so we've done a ton of touring together as a duo. We uh, he plays in my band all the time whenever whenever band shows are a thing, you know. Um, and and you know I I am happy to say that we also do some writing together. If he has a song he's working on, sometimes I'll help him finish up that. And um, I did a little bit of ghost producing on his record he put out a couple years ago. Oh, nice, very good. And and you guys put one out together this year. It's very very recent and it's called Fullerton and Freel. 
super creative i know yeah we know exactly we know exactly who's on it and i love the front cover too is i don't know i'm not a car person but it looks like a, a cadillac with like yeah. a western background well a lot of you know a lot of the thing that i admire about our friendship me and jake is it's very authentic like everything about it we don't really practice that much a lot of the shows are very off the cuff that record i think we went into a studio one night for like three hours no material prepared and just winged it you know um and the, the the photo is the same way i think we were just out for a drive one day and we're like oh look a car we stopped and just clicked a picture and that's the album cover yeah just like that <laughs> i love that that's awesome it's a good that's a good friend to have i'd say he is he's a really good guy um so what what have you been doing on that record obviously the promotion can't is different in quarantine maybe because you're not out touring supporting the record what have you been doing to to push it out there well that's an interesting record because it was it was a, it was a recording that served a couple purposes one is that i had no recordings of jake and i playing together mm. weirdly enough you know and uh we played together often enough that people were asking where can we buy this and i was like well i guess we got to make something um it also served as the first release off my uh, new record label Okay, let's jump into that because I know you've been talking about doing some producing for other artists and you have your own record label now. First off, what's it called? It's called Gitcha Records, like an old-timey street huckster. Wait, spell it. G-I-T-C-H-A. Gitcha. Yeah. Gitcha Records. I like that. I like that. That's a nice, uh, that's got a nice ring. Well, I've always, I always like to include a little bit of like dry humor in almost everything I do. <laughs> right. Well, that, that one, that one works. Thanks man. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it just seemed appropriate. I've always kind of wanted to get a little bit more involved with, you know, the label end of, of the music industry. And, you know, as a, as a self producing artist, you know, Andy, I'm, I'm sure you can relate, like you already do a lot of label functions. Yeah. Uh, literally if, all of them, right? <laughs> except for except for the having money part to take back from me later. Right, exactly. <laughs> well said. <laughs> so what are you doing? So what does the record, first off, what is the record label uh, doing for you? And I guess you, we've already answered that. It's doing all the things you're doing anyway. You just, now you have an LLC, but. Right, uh, right. You're kind of putting an overarching net on that. Um, more than anything, you know, from the consumer end and from the industry end of like people not directly involved with you, it creates just more of an overall umbrella for the sound, the style, the brand as a whole. I think it's almost a, a just an extension of your branding as an artist, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, AJ Fullerton and Get Your Records are associated now. What, do you, what, what service are you providing for other artists as a record label that you're, that you're starting to put out and produce? Well, that's still one of those frontiers. It's pretty new. Um, I'm trying to think what all we've done. I think right now there's the Fullerton Freel record, which obviously that was kind of like the trial run because Jake and I are basically, you know, we're already playing together. I'm already kind of involved with it, whatever. That was easy. The first real uh, sort of release that I kind of had less of me involved with uh, was um, Grant Saban's new record. Grant Saban and the Juke Joint Highball, which, by the way, one of my favorite blues artists out there. I think Grant is by far one of the um, most talented and authentic dudes out there playing blues today. He's great. I've been, I've, I first saw him play probably like eight years ago and have been following him since. And I also uh, watched his, I've been watching his films he puts out too. He's a, he's a filmmaker too. He's a remarkably artistic guy and frankly, like, you know, there, there's a, a small circle of artists in, in the state that I'm, I'm happy to call, you know, friends. But I would also say a lot of those people are, are people I greatly admire, you know, yourself included. And, and Grant, you know, I, like whenever I get to be around Grant, it seems like he's just just oozing creativity and, and new ideas, new thoughts and great music, you know. So standing. Yeah. So he, me, him and his drummer, Kevin Ott, kind of got together and forget exactly how it came about but we we went in you're gonna love this we went into a studio and we had about two hours of time it was after a gig and then before the drive to another gig so we went in with like two hours of time uh 
things got a little delayed. We're having a little trouble setting a couple things up. So we ended up having about an hour of actual recording time. And we cut the entire record live one take. Good and, God. And I mean, you know, it was one of those things that like, um, Kevin was on, on drums, Grant played guitar and vocals, then I was on bass. And we just kind of seen what would happen, winged it, uh, played a bunch of R.L. Burnside tunes. And it all came together into this new record that uh, I believe it, I believe it drops on June 1st. Pre-sales are out now, but June 1st, it's called She Ain't Here, a yeah. tribute to R.L. Burnside. Wow. Okay. It's, is he pressing vinyl? Man, <laughs> is the label pressing vinyl? Well, we'll That's, see. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how much money the label actually has in a little while. Um, yeah, right. You know, it's a fine line, man. Like I've done some vinyl personally for my own brand and it's, it's real expensive and it seems like the turnaround to recoup that investment can take a while. Have you, have you uh, recouped it? I've gotten pretty close. I think I did maybe 300 copies of Calamath and they've been selling really well, but you know, the global pandemic has put a little damper on that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and speaking of the global pandemic you're and if you're listening in right now it's may 9th that we're having this interview so we both we both checked <laughs> yeah, yeah it's may it's may 9th so we're still some some restrictions have been lifted but we're still we're still in it um but speaking of that you have a new record that you've worked on you did it up in toronto i believe um mm -hmm. and it's not out but it was supposed to come out and you decided not to put it out during the pandemic. There's different philosophies on this. Right. Uh, why did you decide to, to pull the record for now? Well, it's a really interesting topic. And the hard part is like, I feel like guys in the industry kind of understand the approach I'm coming from, whereas the average consumer is kind of like, Would, wouldn't that be a good time? You know, everyone's on their computer. They're, they're seeing what people are doing, but I think the big problem is whenever you invest a ton of time, like a year or more is worth of time and money into a project. And uh, you really are like trying to make everything kind of blossom from that. It's really hard in this day and age to make it worth your time, recoup that investment, make it as, as good as it can be without a way to really follow up with that, which is like, having a tour around it, having CD release shows, being able to sell those CDs to people in person. Um, it kind of just dawned on me. I was like, you know, I know guys who are releasing albums right now and I just feel like it's going to really suck putting it off for, you know, months or dot, dot, dot longer. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like it's probably better to keep it in the can for a little while and just kind of, pray for greener pastures, you know? I think you're probably being smart about it. We'll see. I, I'm doing the exact opposite. Mine's coming out a week from today. And my it's just a three-track, a three track and two of them have already come out as singles anyway. But right. my whole thing was impatience because I have so much content that I'm recording and I've got two other EPs I want to put out. And, totally. and I don't want to wait six months because I want to <laughs> put out the other ones. So and that's maybe uh, irresponsible in some ways, but... Uh, well, I think it depends what you're trying to do with it. Um, I, I kind of have a similar mindset to you that, like, if I'm working on another project right now from home, that it'll be, you know, a, however many tracks, more like an EP, you know? And I think those kind of things are totally smart. Singles and EPs, like, get them out there. Right. Can't hurt. Uh, the Toronto record, um, I would say, was more similar to, like, Calamath, where got a whole bunch of people involved. Uh, the, the drummer on the record plays in a band called Blue Rodeo, who's pretty big in Canada. Um, the bass player is a gal named Anna Ruddick, who uh, tours with City and Color a lot, and also um, plays with one of my favorite artists, a guy named Paul Reddick. And, yeah. um, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I brought all these people together, and I really put all these different thoughts and ideas and, you know, things together. And I kind of felt like it would be doing it an injustice to drop it at a time where, like people might just see it on their feed and say, cool, and then keep scrolling, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it very well uh, it very well could happen to me. We'll see. But I think um, I think with something that big, so, you know, you want a big release around it. You're not just putting out a couple tracks. You're like, hey, this is, this is me right now. Um, 
So yeah, you want to play it live, you know. You want to play it live, and I look forward to I look forward to hearing it when it when it does hit the shelves. Thanks, man. Maybe I can even give you a preview off the record. All right, that's what I'm saying. Hey, man, you can, you can play a preview <laughs> on the end of the podcast. Hell, <laughs> oh, that's not not a bad idea. Um, so something that I find interesting I, in 2020, we're in a place where everybody realizes that the future is here, but a, a lot of people are refusing to acknowledge it. And I'm talking about the music industry in particular here, um, because you have so many generations right now that are still performing that have seen so much change that there's so many different philosophies and views in some ways, uh, roots music or blues music and modern musician seem like clashing ideas to people, but, but it's not anymore. It's 2020. And you're somebody who really does both. You're, you go out and play all the time. You're not focusing on covers for your YouTube channel. You're out playing 200 times a year or 250 times a year or whatever it is, but you're also sort of embodying the young millennial musician who's, who's working it online and stuff. How do you, how do you combine the two? Well, that's a great question because it kind of comes down to that balance of like, how do you balance being an artist with being like an entrepreneur or a business person, you know? Um, I think a lot of it comes down to being a little bit disciplined. You kind of have to be like, all right, well, I haven't posted on Instagram in a while. I haven't posted on Facebook. You know, I got to keep my website up to date. I've got to keep my bands in town up to date. Um, but at the same time, I think it just, you know, I've done this now for like seven years or whatever, full time. And I've kind of learned this nice equilibrium between doing the things that like feed you as an artist and the things that make you feel fulfilled with kind of the necessary chores you have to do to keep, your online presence and your, you know, keep the wheels moving of the business. And it all kind of feeds into one another if you find the right balance. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot, I mean, I, I think for me personally, and definitely for you, the playing live is like what it's about. It's uh, it feeds the soul and it's, and it's an amazing thing. There's a lot of artists that don't play live, but are having great success with that either in licensing or with the YouTube channel or with Spotify totally. playlists, whatever. Um, you're somebody and I just see different philosophies with it and I see different philosophies with people playing live shows some bands are saying hey we're going to play one huge show every six months and mm -hmm. then we're going to focus on social media you're somebody who takes every gig I mean well, you play, play well and, and maybe yeah. not anymore but you but you play all the time is my point I have slowed down I, I think my mindset at the beginning, like I said, was just to make a living, make, make some money, keep the wheels moving, keep the business going, you know, for, forego the day job. <laughs> um, but more and more, I have kind of taken the approach of like, don't take every gig, know your worth. I think that's a big part of it. You know, there's definitely comes a time when you're getting offers and you're like, why would I take this offer if I can, you know, make four times more and play a much better gig, you know? Um, so kind of being a little more, a little more choosy about the gigs you take. But I think your strategy is really the strat. I mean, as a, as a young kid, which you're, which you're not anymore, but when you first started going out and playing as a teenager, when we first met, um, that's crazy, dude, it is crazy. I know, I know you were, you were playing, you were playing everything. And I think it's a strategy that worked for you. And I, I'm sure you weren't even thinking of it that way as a strategy. You're just going out and playing because that's what you love to do. But the name A.J. Fullerton kept getting repeated and repeated and repeated um, in the music scene because you were doing shows opening for national acts, but you were also playing at breweries and playing in people's backyards and wherever you could. It's a cool thing. Well, and you know, you're totally right. I've kind of, I've kind of questioned myself about it too because I get asked a lot how I've gotten from, you know, high school, college dropout era, AJ, where I was just wanting to do this to now where you're right. I guess, weirdly enough, I guess I do have a, a name recognition, which kind of surprised Absolutely. me. Absolutely, you do. Um, and opening for like National X. And I think the key is, I like you, like you said, I played a ton. I built up that, that name recognition, brand recognition. And I think with that, there was always a couple people at every show that were like, would come up to you and be like, who are you? Do you have a mailing list? I'd love to follow you. You know, you kind of built a demographic 
and now I've noticed that like when I go play like at Ophelia's or if I play at um, God, it's all kind of becoming a blur. You know, you play a larger gig where you're opening for uh, like the Samantha Fish shows I did recently. Yes. A lot of that demographic comes to the bigger shows, you know? Absolutely. Um, and you just led into my next question, which was about the Samantha Fish shows, but you nailed it with the mailing list. We see a lot of, a lot of folks that are trying to create one YouTube video that'll have a million views or whatever. Um, and that's fine. You might have to do a thousand of them to get that or whatever, but, but you really uh, have picked up one or two people at a time at every show and it's it's probably pretty cool to look back and realize that there's a small army now i feel extremely grateful because yeah. i i know there's a lot of hard work i put in but at the same time i i don't for a minute believe that i didn't get to what i'm doing now without like a a truckload of luck <laughs> well, know? i don't th i don't i don't think it was luck i think it was uh i think it was hard work you know sure sure uh the, I mean, the right place, right time thing is, I think that you've put yourself in position to be in the right place, right time, enough times. I think, yeah, that's a good way to summarize it. So how were the Samantha Fish shows? You did, I, I believe it was six shows around Colorado, and you were an obvious choice for a support <sighs> act because she's blowing up. She's, uh, she's doing Telluride Blues and Brews every year. She's playing big, first time I saw her in 2013, it was at the Toad Tavern. And yep there would be the parking lot would be full now um, outside the stage if she did that now. So she's gotten bigger. You were an obvious shoe in support choice. How did this happen? First off? Well, that was a weird thing. Um, God, it weird. It seems strange saying this, that was maybe in the last five or 10 shows I did before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, Cause February was a little slow as February can be. And then, and then March, everything was canceled, more or less. So the, the Samantha Fish shows came around because I think what happened was one of the venue coordinators reached out to me and said, would you want to be an opener? And I was like, sure, that'd be cool. And then another venue reached out to, to me. Like, I, I didn't. I didn't initiate this. Um, like, I had a couple of venues reach out to me. And then I was like, all right, well... I'll throw my name in the hat. I'll shoot an email off. And then it became this thing where like, basically at least a couple of the venues were like, this is the guy we want. And then I started talking with her agent or her tour manager guy. And then it became like, all right, sounds like you're the guy we want. And, um, so you did all was, of them. Yeah. I think there were, I think it was only like four or five. I, I don't remember exactly. It was, it was all in a week. It was her whole Colorado run. Did um, she do other shows on that run or did she stay in Colorado? I think it was a fly-in thing. Um, all I remember about that, besides the fact they were all really cool shows, all they were all sold out too, which was awesome. Um, yes. The thing I remember about it is we got a gnarly snowstorm <laughs> the night that that all uh, was the first night. Like I think it was the Oriental was a Thursday or Wednesday night, and that was the start of it. Mm -hmm. And you know the the mountains got like I don't know a foot and a half of snow or something crazy, two feet of snow. And they closed 70 and it became this weird thing where like all of a sudden I was getting texts from her tour manager, like, well, what do you think we should do? <laughs> you know, I'm like, play I the shows. Should, I think we should do it. No. Yeah. Well, and it became this thing where like, you know, we shared our thoughts. We made a convoy, her van, my van. And we, I remember the drive from Denver to Grand Junction took like nine and a half hours. Oh my gosh. So you guys spent some time together. You were stopping at the same gas stations and totally grabbing the same bags of Cheetos. Um, did you end up jamming? Yeah. Yeah. I got to play with Sam and uh, I got to say, not only is she super cool, but um, her whole band, they're all amazing people, really, really kind, fun people to hang out with. Like I, I was kind of bummed that we didn't like just keep going because the shows went so smoothly. Um, there was no like weird personalities or anything. There was no misunderstandings. Everything was super smooth. So, so why don't you keep going? Do you think there'll be a, <laughs> do you think there'll be a, a more, a more national run with her in the future? You know, I really hope so. Um, I mean, that kind of was one of those things that I was going to pursue a little bit. Uh, again, we're talking, this is February of 2020 and then, you know, tail end of February, beginning of March, 
everything just kind of the bottom fell out of all music. So <laughs> it did. How yeah. how have you with what's happened? How have how have you changed? Um, it could either be as a entrepreneur or as an mm. artist or both. How have you changed? in ways that that will stay changed after this i don't know if i asked that very well after this thing that's a great way is over what what have you changed because of it that you're gonna keep changed well (laughs) i would say there's like three big things one is i really have loved taking this time to reconnect with people other artists and other friends who i haven't seen as much or kept in touch with like i think this whole experience has made me really appreciate the people in my life you know so that's that's a big part of it, you know, not not talking strictly the business side, but just like the friendships yeah. and the connections. Like that's so huge when you don't Absolutely. have that. Um, talking more to technical angle, uh, this is super weird timing, but I actually bought my first set of mics and my interface and everything like a week before like Code Red pandemic. Good coincidence to have. Oh, it was super weird. Like it was one of those things where like I bought it and I'm like, oh, maybe I'll have time to dig into this a little bit. And then fast forward like a week later, it was like, oh, good call. Sure will. Yeah. Yeah. So the home recording thing, I think, is going to be something that every artist in 2020 should at least get kind of savvy, you know, record your demos at home, you know, get get the basic stuff, make a little interface. Um, And then videos. I think videos are huge right now, too, doing live streams and then posting individual recorded segments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, And along those lines modern musicians are all wearing a lot of hats. And as you just mentioned, we're having to wear even more now. Um, is there anything aside from the home recording that you've been delving in on maybe unexpected, like video editing or something like that? Actually, it's funny you mentioned that cause I totally forgot. <laughs> I kind of picked up a job here once things uh, fell apart. Um, do you know who mm-hmm. Tony Holiday is? Yes. Have you heard of him? Mm-hmm. So Tony is a, a good friend of mine these days, partially due to Nick Clark and then um, more recently due to uh, Jake Friel. It's this weird harp player network. Once you get in with a couple of harmonica players, like they all know each other. Yeah. You know, all and, six uh, of them. <laughs> 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 uh, but anyway, um, Tony holiday has been doing this really cool thing for a couple of years now called the porch sessions. Yeah. Which if you don't know that or haven't seen it, it's basically uh, getting a bunch of musicians from across the U S and across the world together and doing these really cool, um, almost like Alan Lomax style home recordings. Yeah. Really raw, really just like a couple mics out on the porch, one take, you know. And he's been doing that with great success. His records have been selling super well. And me, I think me and him and Jake were on a comp or like a called a conference call. We're just, we're just bullshitting. We were on a call. Uh, and I was like, man, Tony, what if you were to do like a digital porch sessions? And he like stopped and he's like, do you know how to do that? I'm like, well, no, but I could figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. So I've been learning video editing and I'm the official video guy for Tony's virtual porch sessions. Hey, how about that? Nice, 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 nice. No, I've seen them come through Colorado a couple times, and I think maybe Curtis Hawkins was playing with them once, or or, or something. I don't know. There Very was possible. I, I had a buddy who was playing with them, so I was there. Maybe it was Nick, or I I don't know. I don't know. Somebody was. So I've seen them a couple times. They're fantastic. But they're great dudes. Who should Who should we all be checking out? Who should we be adding to our record collection while we're here sitting at home? Oh man. Well. Okay, I, uh, there's so many people out there. There's so many great artists. I, I could probably pick three, but why don't you set the tone, Andy? Who are your three favorite right now? And I'll, I'll go from there. Oh, jeez. If you're going um, to put me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I've, I've dug in, in in the last few months to his Golden Messenger a lot, and we haven't gotten the new live album yet, but I've listened to it on mm-hmm. Spotify a bunch. We did just get Terms of, Terms of Surrender, Great record. Yeah, great record. We got that in. Um, man, what else did I did I just get? I have all kinds of stuff. Man, you you are putting me on the spot. Let's go one I know. for one. Let's all go right, one I'll, I'll, one. I'll trade off with you. So um, I found out recently about an artist who I I, I really loved uh, Mississippi music, Delta music, and Hill Country stuff. Um, yeah. I recently found out about this artist named Mississippi Gabe Carter, mm. who 
I think he's what you'd consider a contemporary artist. He's probably in his 30s, I would guess. Okay. And uh, my gosh, um, I first found out about him because he did a track on the tribute record for John Alex Mason. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And then I started digging into his stuff and like he has that same thing Grant has where it's like he's a blues player, but he's not trying to be somebody else. He's just playing his music. He's just being he's just expressing what he has to express. And so I think he's Chicago based, but Mississippi Gabe Carter is like one of those guys. I'll put his Spotify on and I ordered a CD from him, too. I like to be one of those guys that like if I find somebody I like, I'll buy the CD. Of course. Um I know I'm a dinosaur, but I put no, his Spotify on and every song on his Spotify is great. Like there's no, there's no song I skip. It's like, I'll, I'll go for like an hour and a half or two hours. And I'll be like, this is all I need. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My number two uh, is the new tallest man on earth album. I love you. It's a fever dream. He is a phenomenal mm. guitar player, singer, and songwriter. And uh, I just get whisked away when I put it on. I, I, it's, they're catchy. The guitar, the finger picking is unreal. Um, yeah, I've, I'm loving Tallest Man on Earth right now. He's phenomenal. I've, I've dug in his stuff a little bit. Um, kind of in that same vein, you just made me think about it. Are you a, a Jake Xerxes uh, Fussles, Fussle fan? No. No, send me, some, send me a link. I will, man. He's kind of, I think he's out of that same um, Durham crew as like Phil Cook and, and the Hiss guys. Okay. Send but, me that. Yeah, I will, man. He he's amazing. He does a really similar kind of like uh actually again, speaking of a mutual individual, uh Nick Clark, very yeah. similar in tonality to like that really lush kind of telecaster through a Princeton finger picking stuff with great vocals, great lyrics. Um so Jake is one of those guys I found out recently and I'm like, wow. Very, very authentic. I need a link. I need a link. I love finding uh, new stuff. And and I've been weirdly going through kicks of artists that I've known for years that have been huge mm. for years that I uh, never really delved into, like Sting and Paul Simon. But of for, course, for man. My, for my third, uh, I'm going to point out a, a a rather unknown band who I've been enjoying listening to called Michigan Rattlers. Thank you. Yes. yes, they're. Uh, I, I don't know what to call them. It's kind of folky, kind of rocky. Uh, they do this killer cover of Tom Petty's Time to Move On um, that came up somehow. And then I went and listened to their stuff and I just really, I like their, I like their stuff a lot. But it was, it was one of those, uh, you know, uh, not huge artists that mm -hmm. I found. Like, I really like these guys. You got to be pretty gutsy to put a Petty cover out, like in this day and age. I know. They did a good job. I'm telling you. Well, I, I, I was just here thinking a minute ago, there's two artists I have tied for third. Okay. And they're both artists that I've listened to for years now. And they're both artists that I've met and played with now. Like to me, that's like, yeah. that's like cloud nine. You know, when you, when you meet an artist that you've admired for years and better yet, when you actually get to like play with them, to me, that's like, as a musician, that's like, that's it. That is the holy that's grail. The coolest feeling in the world. But if I can, if I can split number three Do into, it. into two categories, um, Patrick Sweeney, mm. he's, he's out of that yes. same, like, uh, they call it the North coast sound, which is that Ohio black keys, you know, kind of garage rock thing. Yeah, um, absolutely. Patrick Sweeney was one of those people that I, I really grew up trying to figure out the way he played, which is finger picks, open tuning, blues roots based up but with like songwriter sensibility and yeah. rock and roll sensibility um and i did a tour of three or four dates with him back in november he just came to town didn't he yeah I, I, for somebody uh or maybe may, it was his own thing i don't remember i i opened for him at ophelia's which i think was okay. probably the last date okay okay cool. yeah but he's he's one of my all-time favorites um and then, honestly, this is this is my like the moment where I, I put my little nerd hat on. And I'm like, all right, one of my favorite all time contemporary songwriters is uh, a Can Canadian gentleman named Paul Reddick. Yeah, of course. Are you a fan of Paul? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a really cool. I I I don't know when to use the word blues, but a really cool take on blues. 
Well, I, I don't think there's any harm in calling it blues other than maybe right. it's less marketable. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. But well, because I, I have, I offend people like, Oh, you know, I, it's, it's bluesy. And they're like, what? It's not bluesy, but, but it, it is, it is, you know, <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It is. And uh, I got to work with him on the Canada record. He was actually on two or three of the tracks including one of which, which is a cover of one of his songs that we did as a duo. What song? Um, do you know, actually, I, this is one of my favorite songs too. It's called Hooks in the Water. It was actually written by Colin Linden of Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. Yeah, right, right. Wow, that's cool. Man, I want to hear this record. I want to hear this record. I can, I can, I can send you something. Maybe we can feature one of the tracks just as a preview. I would love that. We, you know, we did a premiere uh, last week, so we could do a preview. That'd be cool. We could do a pre we could do a premiere. We can do whatever we want. You know, I, I run this <laughs> right. shit. There's no rules, man. It's 2020. No you know. Uh, uh, well, dude, thank you so much for joining me. It's uh, long overdue that we get together to do this, and that uh, I appreciate your friendship and your musicianship. And thanks for coming on the show. Likewise, Andy. I'll get you those links too, man. Um, I'd love to hear some of these guys you're talking about. And uh, let's definitely not make it so few and far between. I'd love to hear what you're working on mixing wise too. Likewise, likewise. We'll talk to you soon, brother. All right. See you, Andy. All right, AJ, it's good catching up with him. It's It's been a while. Um, for those of you music nerds or audio geeks, I usually record these episodes in 44.1. I'm having some issues with that right now on my computer between the interface and the laptop. They're not communicating right. So I'm having to edit in 48, and I was noticing listening through that the theme song, you may have noticed, in the interview intro and outro music is slightly higher pitched, slightly faster. Um, we're not going to fix that today. It's just how it's going to be for episode 40. But anyway, it's humorous because I wasn't even thinking about that. And then as I've, I've been listening back and editing, I said, oh, the theme song sounds a little different today. Anyhow, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you supporting Middle Class Rockstar. Um, the best thing you can do to support, if you like what you're hearing, is to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Or you can subscribe on Spotify. Um, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Sido. All the episodes, or most now, are being videotaped and put up on YouTube if you'd like to watch. Um, and of course, just spreading it around, uh, sending it to people, tagging people. It's it's a big help. It gets more listeners and and does all kinds of good things. So I appreciate I appreciate it in advance for anyone who's who does that sort of thing. Thank you. Um, any questions, comments, complaints, uh, hate, hate mail, or death threats, you can send them to middleclassrockstar at gmail .com. I'm going to play out with a brand new song from AJ, an unreleased song called Healing Takes Time. Enjoy, and I hope to talk to you very soon. Well, if you lost and lonely, don't tell the world. They all know it's nothing new. If you've been beat down and you've been tossed aside,
Tell the world They all know it's nothing 